0: Take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 44. The goal this evening is to get through chapters 44 and 45. I had hoped to do 46, but I don't think that's possible. Uh, most of our time will actually be spent in chapter 45. So if you look down at your watch and we're, we're dragging, that's, that's it. And we're we're, we're going to move through. We're going to take the Jacob approach in 44 and the Brian approach in 45. But, not not their normal approach. The way they approached the last two weeks, I mean, we're, we're going to fly through chapter 45 really quickly. We're obviously on week four of the study of Ezekiel's temple. Let me just sort of remind you where we are and how we have viewed this. Uh, three weeks ago, I presented quite a lengthy overview of this entire section, trying to share the most common beliefs about this temple, what it is, where it falls in the biblical timeline. There are some really good conservative premillennial scholars which, which the elders here hold to that eschatological position. Men we greatly respect like John MacArthur, Michael Vlock, even Warren Weersby, And just sort of by the process of elimination... They placed this temple in the kingdom age, that age sometimes referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. They would obviously demand that these sacrifices were memorial sacrifices. They have no ability to take away sin, much like the Lord's table today is a memorial supper. It does not save anybody. There are, though, a number of problems with that position, not the least of which is that the Lord's Supper, which is memorial, will be stopped when Jesus returns. Paul seems very clear about that in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, because you don't need a memorial when the actual is standing in front of you. There's no need for a memorial. Not only that, the language in this section Simply will not allow for these sacrifices to be memorial. I mean, they are repeatedly referred to we'll see this in this what we're going to look at tonight referred to as a sin offering, a guilt offering, uh, an atonement offering. And look back at the final verse of chapter 43. When they have completed these days, the days of purification for the temple, from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Uh, the, The clear teaching here is that because of these sacrifices, they would be accepted. This is the old covenant language. This is not memorial language. Look, Jesus has come. The offering of animals as sin offerings and guilt offerings is obsolete. That is the word that the writer of Hebrews uses. They are completely unnecessary and powerless to save. In fact, when Israel continued offering those offerings after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God was not pleased with them because that was the un- believing jews that rejected jesus who continued going to the temple and offering those offerings the believers they quit they quit because christ fulfilled those things so i look i, I admire john macarthur michael vlock i'd preach them in a heartbeat if they walked in the back door like them I, i'm committed premillennialist, but i just cannot accept their position I, I just think it's wrong i love them they don't know i exist but i love them well, and that leads a lot of people primarily in camps that would, you know, replace the church, I mean replace Israel with the church, millennial postmillennial camps to interpret every word of these chapters in some type of symbolism, allegory, metaphors, whatever. And it's guesswork at best. I mean the things that we read here are extremely specific. And if we begin to give them some type of allegorical meaning, well, we, I mean, the sky is literally the limit. In fact, Kim Riddlebarger, a, a leading amillennialist scholar—that's a man, by the way, Kim Riddlebarger—I'm I, I, glad my parents didn't name me Kim. But anyway, he writes this quote: "The prophecy, this prophecy, cannot be interpreted literally and still make any sense." Period. Well, I just take great issue with that. This makes perfect sense. This is not hard to understand. In fact, this is very straightforward. This is a specific set of plans for a temple down to the very inch, or cubit, we should say. It doesn't make sense to Dr. Riddlebarger because it doesn't fit his preconceived position. But it makes sense. This Some try to make this all about the church age, but again, you've got to read that in here. It just does not say that. And for the record, not one biblical author, you know, the ones that are inspired, not one ever likens this temple to this age or anything like that. We don't have the right to go that far. We just do not. Look, if we approach this section that way, not to mention the rest of the Bible, the sky's the limit, we can make Scripture say whatever we want it to say. This is clear language, and I think from all we've seen thus far, we can see that this is a literal temple and a literal city of Jerusalem. There's just far too many details here to make up a bunch of types, especially without any exegetical justification. So that leads to our position. Me, Brown, and Jacob, the elders here, A position I thought was really strengthened by Jacob's sermon last week. I I thought that he did a great job. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. We view these plans for this temple more as instruction than we do biblical prophecy. In other words, they were told to do this. This is not God saying, this is going to be one day. This is God saying, go do this. These instructions are just like the instructions to the original tabernacle later Solomon's temple. There's a prophetic feel to them in the sense that God is still got a future for Israel here, yes. But this is not specifically prophecy. These are plans given to Ezekiel should their generation repent of their past sins. Should they be ashamed of their past sins? Chapter 43 verse 11 says... Exactly that. The the fact that Zerubbabel's temple, which is the one they built after the Babylonian captivity, the fact that that temple is nothing like this one, and it is built after the plans of Solomon's temple, is a pretty good indication that they did not repent and get these plans. At least it seems that way to me. They were simply not ashamed. Couple that with the fact that once they got back, just more... Prophets have to be sent to them because they're not doing the things they needed to do. Ultimately, of course, John the Baptist came preaching to them. They did not repent at John's preaching. And then that prophet like Moses, Jesus, came preaching to them and they didn't repent at his preaching either. In fact, they murdered him. So that speaks volumes of their unfaithfulness. So the fact that this temple was not built tells us that they were still very unfaithful all the way to the very last second of the Old Testament economy. They remain today a rebellious house. I think that's what this passage is telling us right here. I think it is. We'll get into that. By the way, that's the reason that God is today predominantly working through Gentiles. Romans 11 Spells that out. The title of tonight's message is Ezekiel's Temple Part 3. That's, I took, it took me two weeks to think that up. Subtitle, The Problem of the Prince. In this message, we're going to look at you know, more you know, particulars of this temple, but specifically we're going to focus in on this prince that is talked about here. All right, let's start moving. Put your seatbelt on. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by the way of the north, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws." And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, Enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. You have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Now there's obviously a special sacredness attached to this door, to this, to this gate, a separation between the holy and the common, it said back in chapter 42, a separation between God and man. Now, I'm not going to continue to hammer this once we get out of this section, but tonight we will. I, I know some of you struggle with the meaning of this temple, but the Father has reconciled us to Christ, I mean to Himself through the work of Christ. This separation has been eradicated by Jesus. That's important to see as we look at this. This separation seems to me to speak loudly as to the new covenant not yet being in place. This is is old covenant language. So these these temple blueprints represent something under the old covenant law, the, the Mosaic Code. Not only that, here we are introduced to this prince You probably noticed that when I read through this section. And it is easy to initially assume that this is Jesus. In fact, some commentators have done that. But I think that's because they have not looked at everything that is said about this man. Look at chapter 45, verse 22. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. But Jesus has never had to have a sin offering offered for himself. This man is not Jesus. Look, Jesus is able to be our mediator between us and God precisely because he did not have to pay for his sins, therefore he could pay for ours. This prince is not Jesus. Furthermore, chapter 46, we won't get there this evening, but when we do get there, chapter 46 tells us that this prince has sons, children. So this is, this is not Jesus. Look, the word prince has been used consistently in this book, and it has repeatedly re- been referring to a king In chapter 12, the prince in Jerusalem, for instance, refers to Zedekiah. In chapter 19, the princes of Israel, you know, the the northern kingdom, referred to the the non-Davidic kings of the north. And when we went through all of those judgments of of those nations, what did it call their kings? The prince of Tyre. I mean, that, that language has been used consistently in this book. Furthermore, and this is really important, Ezekiel 34, in very precise terms, in verse 23, says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince. Among them. This is Jesus, by the way. This is is messianic. This is talking about Jesus. My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. Who will be the king during the kingdom age? Jesus. Jesus. In fact, this book, Ezekiel 34 23 and 24, says that Christ alone will reign, and he will need no help. He will need no help. So in my mind, the fact that this allows for a prince, a king in Israel at this time, is further proof that this is not prophetic. This is not talking about the kingdom age. It was instruction to the people in Ezekiel's day, and if they were repented, if they were ashamed of all they had done, they received these plans. This would have been built And all of the things we read here would have occurred. But they didn't. Again, the fact that it was not built by the remnant after the Babylonian captivity had ended is just quite telling. And just another example of how unfaithful Israel was to her ever-faithful husband, Yahweh. Had they repented, the plan's... They have received the plans, built the temple. The Shekinah glory would have once again inhabited Israel there in this building. But they didn't. And their unfaithfulness culminated in their rejection of the Messiah, King, the Son of God. Well, Ezekiel was commanded here to mark well everything God commanded him, demanding that Israel repent of all of their previous abominations. And then in, in very plain words, right there in the middle of verse 7, this temple in Ezekiel's day is, is linked right back to Solomon's temple. In other words, he says, what you did back then, don't do this time around. You see, there's, this, there's just this old covenant field. They profaned His temple when they offered Him food, the fat and the blood. They broke His covenant in addition to all their abominations. They did not keep charge of His holy things. They set others to keep His charge in the sanctuary. What they did in the previous temple, they're commanded not to do this go-round, not to do in this temple. There's no change of law here. This is the same law that they had in Solomon's temple. But when Jesus came, the Old Covenant law was made obsolete and the New Covenant was implemented. This temple, as far as I can tell, still represents the Old Covenant mosaic economy. and The very law that has been superseded by the work of Christ. All right, verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols, when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its services and all that is to be done in it. I'm really glad that we've been studying the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, particularly the passage on Cornelius in chapter 10 and 11. It's really perfect timing. Circumcision here still has relevance. Look what he says in verse 9. Thus says the Lord, this is the law, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. Look, circumcision still has relevance here in Ezekiel 34. There is still a division between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Now, the heart is first. They they need to be circumcised in heart, of course. But the flesh is still there. There's still physical circumcision right here in the text. And they're specifically pointed out as foreigners. Listen, in, in the New Covenant the distinction of circumcision, uncircumcision is gone. I I mean, even as we see in other kingdom prophecies, Gentiles are fully accepted to worship the Lord. Isaiah 56 is a perfect way to see that. Now, I'm not saying there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. I'm I'm not saying that. I still believe Israel has a predominant place in the kingdom, but this is a refusal to allow the uncircumcised near to the Lord to worship. If this is the future, we will take a step back. There's just no way that that is the case in my, in my brain. Now, I think we can all agree we are received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as Paul wrote in Galatians 5, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Anything. Look, if all these rules and regulations are implemented, it is a step out of grace back to law. I just cannot see this being future. This section obviously limits the Levites from some of their full service that they were able to do under the Mosaic law because they led in the false worship, the idolatrous worship of the Jews, but they still are allowed to operate in service in the temple to a degree. All right, verse 15. "...but the Levitical priest, the son of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. When they, shall enter, or when they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments." They shall have nothing of wool on them. By the way, you've still got that, that law of not being able to, to blend these, these fabrics you know, going on here. They shall have uh, nothing of wool on them. They shall minister at the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waist. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common, and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall act as judges, They shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. After he has become clean... They shall count seven days for him, and on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court, to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. So the sons of Zadok were, were actually placed into priestly positions during the reign of Solomon, and that position still holds here. Just for the record we have a greater high priest than these priests that are mentioned here his name is Jesus but i, I, I think you could see just as we read through this section there is still this separation uh, a ceremonial separation we might call it between the holy and the common between god and his people And even the appointed feasts, which we'll see here in just a moment more specifically, but the appointed feasts are still required even though Paul says in Colossians 2 that those things were just a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I'm not really sure how much clearer the language could be relative to becoming unclean and touching a dead body and then atoning for it by a sin offering, like it says there in verse 27. This, this language, again, is not memorial. If you become unclean by touching a dead body, you have to bring a sin offering to get back clean. There's no way you can make that a memorial sacrifice. The language will not allow it. By the way, for those who think this somehow represents the eternal ages, well, the fact that there's death pretty much squashes that whole idea, right? So we're not talking about the eternal ages. We're not talking about the kingdom age. Christ put all of these things away. We are made clean, even as Gentiles. We are made clean through His work and His work alone. He has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's Hebrews 10. This is not a future sacrifice for sin. Jesus has made a sacrifice for sin. And you know what He did? He did something no priest was ever allowed to do. He sat down. There was no chair in the temple. There was no chair in the tabernacle. You know why? The work of the priest was never done. When Jesus got through, he sat down. There is no more need for a sin offering. His work is complete. All right, verse 28. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. The fruit of all the first fruits of all kinds and every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall belong to the priests. You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough that a blessing may rest on your house. The priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast that has died of itself or is torn by. Wild animals. All of this stuff is just straight back to the Mosaic Code as, as far as these things are concerned. Levitical priests are supplied their food from the tithes of the people. The inheritance for them then was God himself, not their own land and, and property. Okay, let's push through chapter 45. Verse 1. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long, 20,000 cubits broad. It shall be holy throughout its whole extent. Of this, a square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary, where 50 cubits for an open space around it, And from this measured district you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land." It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister to him. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. And I know that's a lot of language. That's one of the reasons that we have this Picture up here. It's different from the one that Brian was using a couple of weeks ago. But if you look up there at the top, that's sort of a key for what we just read. The temple is going to be located right in the middle, right in the heart of national life, just like it was before, where it's always intended to be the focal point. This is where God was going to dwell. And and beside the temple area was an area for the priests the Levites, the city workers. And then beyond that, on either side was this area where this prince, this this king was to live and own property. I I hope you can at least sort of see that from that picture up there. And the prince is actually allotted specific land. Notice verse 7. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district, And the property of the city alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern border of the land, it is to be his property in Israel and my princes, plural, shall no no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel. Put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. Let me tell you, when Jesus sits on the throne, that stuff will go. That stuff will go. You won't have to instruct them to. This this prince was then allotted land. this, This lot of land seems to be bequeathed to his children, because it goes on to say, as I pointed out when we were reading, and my princes, plural, shall no more oppress my people. So this is not an everlasting monarchy by this one prince. He's going to die. This is a dynasty. It's going to be given to his sons, to subsequent kings. And let me remind you one more time, during the kingdom age, Jesus will reign. From start to, To finish. There will be no replacement. There will be no election. He will always remain king, Christ alone. And all of these instructions, you know, execute judgment, put away violence and oppression and righteousness. When Jesus reigns on the throne, all of those things will happen. Nevertheless, had they been ashamed, had they repented, it would have at least ushered in a time where they would have had righteous kings judging in a righteous manner. But they did not. And so they never even had a king after the Babylonian captivity. But they will. Verse 10. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be used of the same measure. The bath containing one-tenth of a homer, the ephah one-tenth of a homer, the homer shall be the standard measure. The shekel shall be 20 gerahs, 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels shall be your mina. Look, I'm not getting into all of the specifics of how much these all weigh. We don't deal with these this language anymore, but... The idea that this shouldn't be taken literally, this little short section tells me that is just not possible. <laughs> this, is, this is very specific language as to how much something was supposed to weigh. There, there's, there's no way that we can make allegory out of this. It means what it says. They're, they're, these are just more instructions not to oppress the people had a king risen when they repented, but they didn't. And so Jesus, the greatest of kings, the king of kings, the righteous king, the only righteous king, all of these things will happen when he's on the throne. Verse 13, This is the offering that you shall make, one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of wheat, one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of barley, And as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath for each core, the core, like the homer, contains ten baths, one sheep from every flock of two hundred, from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel." It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, and all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Again, these are are not memorial sacrifices. We have to change what the words say to make them that. Now, quoting Charles Feinberg and all of this explanation, there's not a great deal that calls for exposition. These these things are are very plain, especially if you knew all of the, the measurements, which they would. I don't think I'll have a whole lot to add, but I will point this out. This prince, this king is the one in charge of these offerings, leading spiritually. I think we've made this point not only in our study of Ezekiel, but also in Jeremiah, that in Israel, a king was not just a politician. He was to be a spiritual leader. And we see that here. That's why the kings, the princes of Israel, are so often charged with sin, because rather than leading the people to worship Yahweh, they led the people to serve idols. And so they were guilty. Verse 18. And thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the seventh month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance. So you shall make atonement for the temple so we just we have more sin offerings this time by the way it even includes offerings for sins of ignorance i don't know if you know this or not but you sin and don't even know it sometimes well they had in the law they had a way to fix that they had offerings for sins of ignorance but in the case of christians christ has put it all away Ignorance or not. I don't know how else to take this, but as it reads, I think as you know, literal hermeneutic premillennial scholars, we do great damage when we allegorically try to interpret this stuff. Simply, Jesus has made a better sacrifice than all these things. All right, let's finish up. Verse 21. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover, and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish, on each of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, an ephah for each ram, and a hin of oil to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, for the seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil. So here we have outlined the... Passover celebration. You may recall, if you know your Bible, that the Passover celebration commemorated God's miraculous deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And it was celebrated. It was supposed to be celebrated. And here, it is still to be celebrated. But listen, if, if you were blessed enough to go with us through the book of Jeremiah, then you probably remember two times actually in Jeremiah, but we'll just read one. Jeremiah 23 says this in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Just insider information, that's Jesus. He's the righteous branch. He shall reign as king. There will be no vice king. He is King and will deal wisely. So there will be no reason to give these instructions to the king because when Jesus reigns, Jesus will deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely. Listen to this this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. That is an actual kingdom prophecy. All premillennialists agree on this. There's no debate. It refers to a worldwide restoration of Jews to their land. And notice the point that is made here in Jeremiah 23. When this worldwide restoration occurs, some have referred to it as a second exodus, but when when this occurs from all the countries where God has driven them, then the exodus from Egypt will no longer be seen as the greatest event in Israel's history. They will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And yet, here in this passage, we're still talking about the Passover. That's damaging to the idea that this is prophecy. It is. Jesus, by the way, fulfilled the Passover. Paul, who was a Jewish man said for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover. I mean, does this language here sound like Jesus has died fulfilling this? Well, of course not, because it's still hundreds of years before Jesus comes at, at this time. So you have the. You have the Passover there at the beginning and then the latter part at the end. It just refers in similar language to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the feast here in the seventh month on the 15th day of the month. Look, I don't want to take this entire section as a is it or is it not a millennial temple. But but if we don't, then I think we leave a bunch of unanswered questions out here. This is important information. It's important for us to read this and say... Jesus is better than that. It, that's important for us to see. And I hate to say this, but let's just be honest. If, if I just work through the particulars of this thing, it's just a bit drab anyway. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win for us to be able to, to get into this. Th- this prince, to me, is perhaps the greatest problem beyond that of the sacrifices of the animals But this prince is one of the greatest problems to the millennial temple argument. I mean, again, as committed premillennialists, the only king in the kingdom age is Jesus. There is no vice king. There's no vice president, nothing. He alone will reign. Had they repented after the Babylonian captivity... All of this would have happened, including a king that would not have oppressed them. Now, Jesus still had to come to pay for our sins. I'm not, I'm not saying that, and this is all in the providence of God. But as it were, by God's providence, they did not repent. There was no king, and they were oppressed by all of those around them, all of the surrounding nations, even during the ministry of, of John and Jesus, who was actually running the show? Who was in charge? The Roman Empire was in charge at that time. They had a lot of freedom under the Roman Empire, but they did not have a king living in this type of freedom. Listen though, their hope today is not that this prince, some king, will rise up. No, their hope today is that the king returns. Returns. That is their hope. That they repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Still yet, at this point, all we've studied relative to this temple, there is this this great divide between God and man. Again, chapter 42, a separation between the holy and the common. But Jesus has bridged that gap for us. He has stood in between Us and God. And when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Access to God has been made sure, not through all this, but through the finished work of Christ alone. The path has been cleared. Jesus alone mediates between God and sinners. But this temple, at least in my mind, from a literal reading of this text, has up what Christ has torn down. I don't think we're going to rebuild the Old Covenant. I surely hope not, because we are all condemned if we've got to try to get to God through that. And so are they. Now you know, this is what's amazing. I think if we'll keep the book in mind and not think just about this section, keep the whole book of Ezekiel in mind, what we've been studying One theme continued to raise up almost week after week after week after week. Passage after passage. One primary theme. The new covenant is coming. Something better than the old covenant law when God will cleanse them from the inside out. When he will put his spirit inside of them and cause them to walk in his statutes. It seems unlikely here at the end of the book that God is saying, yep, but then after that, there, we're going to you know, revert back to, to the old covenant. That just seems unlikely. Listen, do not seek God through ceremony. You can't get there that way. Even biblical ceremony. Like your baptism is not getting you to heaven. What's represented in baptism is getting you to heaven, and that's the work of Christ alone. The Lord's Supper is not getting you to heaven. What's represented in the Lord's Supper, that's getting you to heaven. That's Christ alone. Church membership is not getting you to heaven. Look, The only way to have peace with God is through the finished work of Christ alone. He paid the debt that we owed, the debt of our sins through His sacrifice in His blood on Calvary's cross. And one day, According to Zechariah 12, Lord willing, will be there in the 11 o'clock service in about six months. Zechariah 12. God will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Grace. And pleas for mercy. So that when they look on Him, Him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn. We call that that repentance. As one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. They will be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus. They will repent and trust in Christ alone. What you need to make sure is that this evening, you are trusting Christ alone. Stand with me if you will. Blake, will you dismiss us please, sir?